BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, April 23rd, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. You know when, like, neuroscientists start talking about this idea that we don't have free will? Oh, no. This <laughs> this whole conversation gives me a headache. I don't know what to make of it. Like, why is free will such an interesting thing for neuroscientists to poke at? Well, I mean, you could argue it's really what makes us human, right? The fact that we can make choices, that we can do the things that we want to do. And it's very important to us. When we when we lose our... our illusion if it's not if it's an illusion or you know our, our thinking that we have free will we get very depressed you know we you know we, we get very stressed it's it's a it's a bad thing it seems to be very important to us i not arguing that free will is not important but i think there are lots of things that make us human down to our biology yeah so one of the things that's always bothered me about the argument coming from, you know, neuroscience that, you know, because there's a lot of that there's a, so many of the processes that the brain does are not available to us consciously, that there's this huge iceberg of stuff that we just aren't aware of. And therefore, consciousness is just this tip. And in fact, that it, it, it happens post hoc, that all this stuff happens first, and then we become conscious of the decisions that we made, you know, the things that our brain does, and therefore we have no free will. Well, to me, there's always there was always like a missing link in that argument. And that missing link reminded me of a lot of different aspects of evolution. And so when I learned about Ken Miller and his new book, uh, it's called The Human Instinct, How We Evolved to Have Reason, Consciousness and Free Will, I was super excited to talk to him. Ken is a professor of biology at Brown University, and he's also the best-selling author of a book called Only a Theory and also Finding Darwin's God. So this is a person who frequently talks about evolution. You could argue is an evolution expert. That's what he studies. And his claim is, hang on a minute, just because we have all these processes that we are not consciously aware of, that does not mean that at some point we also have evolved consciousness and free will. Free will as an evolutionary construct that is new. Yes. And it's and it's sort of, you know, coming from a person for whom, you know, biological determinism is, you know, a, kind of a, a main saddle point of, of an, you know, the way that he does his work. Uh, to me, I was really interested in, in hearing his argument. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Ken Miller. 
This episode is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Whether you want to learn something new or just sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. Ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could do that? With Udemy, you can. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, Udemy has something for everyone. Plus, each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere, or visit ude.my slash inquiring today. That's ude.my slash inquiring. This episode was brought to you by Smart News. Tired of seeing ads when you want news? Sick of having social media filter out your news? Feeling like you're often missing out on breaking news? Download Smart News for free in the App Store or Google Play Store and get your news in real time from over 300 trusted sources, including CNN, Vice, TechCrunch, National Geographic, and more. Smart News' algorithm automatically curates the must-read stories that matter right now, so you can get your news in just one minute. Plus, you can read the news wherever you go, even when you're offline. I love Smart News because it gives me what I want when I want it without any unseen algorithm doing all the work. Get your news in one minute with Smart News, available for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Ken Miller, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with the writings and the thoughts of people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris on the question of whether we as human beings actually have free will or whether our choices and our decisions are actually predetermined uh, by our biology. And so I want to start with asking you to tell us a little bit about how you came to disagree with them and sort of your initial view I know you put, you put together a very cogent argument in your book, but let's just start at the beginning. What made you think that they might be wrong? Well, there's an old saying among philosophers that nothing is more apparent than the fact that we have free will, because, of course, I can choose to lift my left hand up or my right hand up and so forth. Rene Descartes thought as much, and I think many philosophers have thought the same way. But in a modern era of neuroscience, the question of uh, if we do have free will, how does it arise, has become a mechanical question. And I think many people, you certainly see this in the writings of Sam Harris and, and also Richard Dawkins, many thinkers in the area are, are quite concerned that if an assertion is made that free will exists, that it undermines the whole materialist view of human nature. In other words, that, that arguing for free will is equivalent to sort of sticking some spooky ghost in the mechanism that is the brain. And certainly um, with Dawkins and Harris, one of their concerns is that if you do that, then you're inserting or you're finding a place for spirituality. And of course, uh, uh, Dawkins and Harris are both quite hostile to that. So I think that's a large part of it. My own views on free will, and I think we have it, uh, are not so much driven by a desire to find room for spirituality or de desire to transcend the material, um, I think if free will exists, it is built in to 
the processes of physics and chemistry and the cell biology connections that exist in the brain. Uh, but my own reason for making a defense of free will is largely because I think science depends upon it. One of the people I, I would cite right away is Stephen, the late Stephen Hawking. It's a little hard to say the late because I'm so used to him being around with us and mourn his loss like many other people do. Um, one of the things that Hawking wrote when he considered the possibility that someday we would arrive at a grand unified theory of existence was this, and I'm quoting from Hawking right now, if there really is a complete unified theory, it would also presumably determine our actions. And so the theory itself would determine the outcome of our search for it. And why should it determine that we might come to the right conclusions from the evidence? Might it not equally well determine that we draw the wrong conclusions or no conclusions at all? So what Hawking is writing about there is that if our scientific judgment, like all other thoughts and actions, is in fact uh, deterministic, it means that the conditions of the universe are determining that conclusion. And that leads to a series of strange paradoxes uh, about science itself. In, uh, in my own book, The Human Instinct, I devoted a chapter to free will. And I was particularly you know, moved to do that by reading Sam Harris's recent book. It's, it's you know, a very short book on free will, in which he argues, I think with, with considerable persuasion and with great eloquence, he argues against the existence of free will. But in so doing, he makes a number of curious arguments and statements, one of which is that the readers of his book would be able to basically improve their lives, live better, construct a better society, if they, who do not have free will, came to the conclusion advocated by Harris, who also does not have free will, that they, the readers, lack free will because they would then be able to order their lives accordingly. So the notion of persuading someone who doesn't have free will that they should come to the conclusion they don't, and that would enable them to make choices, which of course are not free, uh, that would result in a, in a better life, is paradoxical on its face. And that's one of the reasons why I found myself in a position of defending the existence of free will, because I think science depends upon it. And, you know, this is just one element of why a lot of people see evolution as a threat the theory of evolution, and this reluctance to accept it, particularly in American culture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, about sort of where this reluctance comes from? And despite the overwhelming evidence, you know, why is it that so many people refuse to accept the theory? Well, first of all, you know, I want to make clear uh, to your listeners, especially who knows, those who don't know of me, that I've made a sort of a side career. I'm a cell biologist by training, but I've sort of made a side career out of defending evolution publicly. I've testified in two federal trials on the teaching of evolution. The most, the best well-known one is Kitzmiller versus Dover, which was the so-called intelligent design trial in Pennsylvania in 2005. Uh, I've written books defending evolution. I lecture on this frequently. Uh, and there's even a slew of YouTube videos of my lectures on, on this issue. There is no question that acceptance of evolution in the United States lags behind every other developed country in the world. And the short answer to why that is is actually pretty simple, and that is uh, its religion. There is a very, very large chunk of 
the American religious enterprise, religious fundamentalism, that rejects evolution as a threat to biblical literalism. And uh, there it is. So, you know, on one level, religious faith and the acceptance of the book of Genesis as literal, scientific, and uh, historical fact is, I really think, the, the, the principal obstacle here. However, there's also a really strong cultural objection to evolution. And Daniel Dennett, in, in one of his books, actually argued that the perception that evolution is a threat to free will, he believes, is uh, the most deeply held and visceral objection to evolution that people have. And his argument or his reasoning behind this is evolution, like all of science, is inherently materialistic. And if we are material creatures, which indeed any scientist would tell you that we are, then the actions of our body, the thoughts of our, uh, our brain and the nervous system are themselves the result of pre-existing conditions, and therefore we lack free will. And many people find that conclusion to be a profound undermining of the human sense of importance, of self-responsibility, uh, and ultimately, you might say, a slur on the notion of human dignity and independence. Um, and I find that all the time when I lecture publicly on evolution and on the acceptance of science and on science denial, and I do so frequently in front of religious audiences, they tell me that you know evolution tells us that we're just animals. And like animals, we're mere machines that react to the environment. And they find that as an, affront, as an affront to personal dignity. And I think that's a large part of the issue. Even though there is this sort of religious aversion to evolution, there is also a sense that the way that we think about Darwinism is just negative at its core, uh, that we're really looking and comparing the human species to, you know, some of the just the, 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 the least desirable traits in other animals. Yeah, no, I think, that, I think that's a good point. Marilyn Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist who wrote Gilead and a host of other absolutely splendid novels, is also an essayist. And in one of her collections of essays, a book called The Death of Adam, she laments what she regards as the social and moral implications of Darwinism. And she means Darwinism basically is a synonym for evolution. But for her, Darwinism is something much darker. Um, she writes in there that what the Darwinists do is to take elements of human nature and compare them to the actions, and these are her words, the actions of whatever animal has been observed behaving shabbily in nature. And then she writes, and the Darwinists take the darkest view of the animals. So to her and to many other thoughtful people, Evolution's message in terms of what it tells us about ourselves is dark and foreboding and implies the basest notions, basest motivations to human conduct and habits and basically says that the only things that drive us are the imperatives of survival and reproduction and competitive advantage. And in her view and the view of many others, that debases the human project to the point where we are just another grubby bunch of animals scrambling for survival and discounts the great human achievements of culture and morals and value and even science itself. Now, I think Robinson is fundamentally wrong about what evolution implies 
about human nature. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is I wanted to argue that, yes, we are creatures of evolution. We understand our beginnings in the evolutionary process. But the evolutionary process, although it is the source of what we are capable of, it is not the end of it. And what evolution has done is to endow the human species with a set of gifts and capabilities that no other creature possesses and have enabled us to produce the high culture, the civilization, and even the science that is unique and characteristic of our species. And I think that's really an uplifting message. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, you make a pretty strong claim in your book that if if we were to allow it, evolution biologists uh, would ultimately explain everything to do with human beings, you know, leaving less room for say the neuroscientists. And so neuroscientists like Sam Harris come from a diff- very different angle, looking at sort of as you mentioned the mechanics of the brain and and trying to figure out how this is possible. But there's also a lot of evolutionary psychologists that have overreached. And so, you know, I kind of want to talk about that for a little bit. And I want to start with uh, a study that you uh, quoted from 2013 that I had actually never heard of that made me laugh out loud, um, which is the relationship between testicular size and parenting skill in men. Yeah, th- so, this was uh, – sorry, I was going to say, sometimes evolutionary psychology has overreached, and I'm here saying to myself, boy, has it ever. But but but, but go ahead. Yeah, so so first let's – let's uh, for, for those other listeners who uh, apparently had their head in the sand and did not uh, see the media reports on this particular study, can you just describe a little bit about what the study found and, um, you know, your critique of it? Well, what this what this study did – was um, to assemble a group of human volunteers, and uh, all men, and major, uh, measure, uh, in other words, uh, determine uh, the mass of their testicles, uh, how many grams. And there are a number of ways to do that, and I'll leave it to the listener's imagination. They then decided that they wanted to see if they could correlate testicular mass with effective parenting. And they fired off a series of psychological profile questions that were designed to determine to what extent an individual valued family, the nurturing of children, caring for young people, to what extent you were annoyed by babies crying and all this other sort of stuff. And from responses to these questions, they basically extrapolated numerical measures of what they thought was a psychological profile for effective parenting. And what they claimed to have have found was an inverse relationship between testicular size and effective parenting. And the conclusion was that the guys with the big testicles don't make effective parents. They then, from that, decided to construct an explanation for that. And their explanation, which was offered really without any evidence, is that larger testicles um, would produce a higher sperm count, uh, would result in higher testosterone levels, and that males um, with those characteristics would be psychologically more inclined to, let's say, spread their genes around rather than concentrating on the family unit and raising the kids that they had. You know, the the study itself had some statistics in it that I can quibble with in a number of ways because I don't think the statistical evidence was as strong as the conclusions that came from it. 
But the more objectionable thing was the just so story. And they argued that basically, you know, there's an evolutionary imperative that all men possess to spread their genes around as much as possible. So if an individual, a male individual in a relationship is highly promiscuous, if you cheat on your spouse, well, that's explained by biology. It's not your fault. It's simply the way in which those large reproductive organs have programmed you. I would take issue with almost everything in the study. Uh, one of which is their measure measure of effective parenting, and you know one of the one of the things I wrote in my book is that um, I know I have many male friends um, who have raised children successfully, who pride themselves on being effective parents, of playing important roles in their families, and providing a loving, nurturing environment to their children along with their spouses, and if you ask them. To a person, they would tell you they made that choice, that they freely decided this was what was important in their lives. And what this study was trying to tell them was, nope, it was biology. Um, you were programmed that way. You just didn't have a big set of these uh, reproductive organs, and that's why you concentrated on your kids. Um, I find that, you know, as, as a father of girls, I find that personally insulting. But the other thing is there was really no effort in this study, and this is true with a lot of studies in evolutionary psychology, to actually look for a biochemical or genetic basis for any of the characteristics that were attributed to the behavior of these individuals. And there certainly was no follow-up to determine the validity of this psychological profile as to who really was an effective parent and who was not. And I find that typical, not of all studies, in evolutionary psychology, but in quite a few of the ones that gather the most attention. Another one that we can discuss, if you like, is a hilarious study that came out a few years ago uh, claiming to have understood why women love to shop and men don't. And the authors made arguments that this all has to do with uh, hunter-gatherer conditions during the Paleozoic, which, again, I thought was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think big balls make bad dads is is pretty funny, and you know the the whole like yeah, that's loves- the, that's that's the New York Post headline for the study. That's right. <laughs> um, but you know, the the I want to kind of delve a little bit more deeply into your argument, where you know, if you're really going to look at this from an evolutionary perspective, looking at the genetics is is almost uh, you know necessary. So tell us a little bit about that kind of tool and why that's important if you're really going to make an evolutionary argument. Well, the, the, the reason for that is simple, and that is it's really quite easy to concoct evolutionary just-so stories as to why individuals have a particular physical characteristic or a behavioral characteristic. Uh, this is a good way to generate a hypothesis, an idea, but what science really requires is that you then follow that up. And uh, if you want to argue that evolution has predisposed uh, a certain type of behavior in males or females or whatever, it's then incumbent upon you to sort of follow that up and to look for actual genetic traits that can be characterized down to the level of DNA if possible uh, that actually correlate with the behavior that you're trying to infer on the basis of evolutionary genetics. And what I don't object to is the speculation. What I do object to is a study that makes speculation and stops right there and doesn't follow it up. And that's all too common in the field of evolutionary psychology. 
Yeah, so I want to kind of talk a little bit more about sort of modern evolutionary approaches to, you know, the the place of human beings in the tree of life. And, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners are are familiar with the, you know, original, you know, tree of life idea where human beings are at the, you know, top branch, the sort of, you know, evolution shaping us towards becoming this really important species. Um, And now we think of the tree of life as more of a circular thing where no individual species takes on uh, the central role. So can you tell us a little bit about that shift and what it means for how evolutionary biologists now study the products of evolution? Well, one of the, one of the great uh, disciples and popularizers of Charles Darwin in the 19th century was Ernst Haeckel, who was a, a German embryologist. Um, he's best well known for his studies of comparative embryology, in which he argued that um, uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which means in plain terms that organisms pass through in their embryonic development evolutionary stages in their ancestry. Well, that's not quite true. Um, And that's been known to be wrong for quite a long time, even though embryology can tell you a lot uh, about the evolutionary history of an organism. But Heckel is also someone who took the idea of a tree of life and produced a really quite nice illustration. Heckel was, in fact, a quite good artist who often illustrated his papers with beautiful drawings of the organisms he studied. Uh, And he produced literally a tree of life showing the interrelationships between major phylogenetic groups. And not surprisingly, at the very top of the tree, at the pinnacle, at the apex, he put human beings. Uh, And for quite a long time, I think the popular image of evolution, you might remember that very famous time-life illustration of human evolution where you have, you know, you start out with a chimpanzee and then you evolve into more and more like human-like forms, all of them walking to the right, all the figures male, all of them with a leg strategically placed so so as to obscure the genitalia. The idea of progress in evolution leading to us is a very popular image, but it's also one that any biologist, including myself, would reject immediately. Every living thing on this planet, including that bacterium that is right on the tip of your fingernail right now, because I'm sure it's there for everyone listening, that bacterium has gone through just as much evolution as you and I have. So in a sense, all creatures are equally evolved for their own specialized niche, for their own particular lifestyle. So rather than imagining a tree with a hierarchy, As you mentioned, a modern conception of evolution starts with a first organism that then branches out and diversifies and diversifies and diversifies, moving in an ever-widening circle with greater and greater diversity. And within that circle, all present-day creatures, in effect, occupy an equal position, and so do we. So Darwin once wrote, never say higher or lower. And he was right. Sometimes we speak about higher plants, lower plants, the higher animals, the lower animals. That's a human convenience. And the fact of the matter is we shouldn't do that. We human beings are perfectly good animals. We fit within a particular classification of the animals, namely a large group called chordates and a smaller group called mammals and a still smaller group called primates. Uh, But there are many other classifications as well. And in purely biological terms, and this is what I'm emphasizing, in purely biological terms, there's no reason to regard any creature, including ourselves, as different or special from that rule. 
but there are other reasons to regard us as special, and we can get into this. Well, that was going to be my next question. So that gets us to, yeah, your, your argument of, of, of why it's not so depressing to think of human beings as just one more, uh, you know, naturally selected for species. So, so, so let's, let's go there. Yeah. So, so is it okay if I read just a couple lines from my book? Sure. Okay. In the last chapter of my book, and I called it Center Stage, I started out, I was writing this chapter in August, and here's how I began it. I'm hoping for a clear sky tonight. It's expected to be the peak of the annual Perseid meteor shower, a chance to glory in streaks of sudden fire as fragments of a comet come crashing through the Earth's atmosphere. The experience has always made me feel small against the vastness of space, but it's also one that has helped me as a biologist appreciate what it means to be human. And I'll skip ahead and get to my bottom line in this. And here's what it means to be human. Of all the creatures, of all the forms of life that grace the surface of this small planet, there is only one that looks this way into the nighttime sky. Only one knows the Perseid Spectacular is coming. Only one plots the distances to stars. Only one contemplates the age of its universe. Only one is aware of the mysteries to be solved in starlight. While all of life is one, while all of life is linked by ancestry, structure, and design, only the human creature seeks answers to questions in the stars. That's what makes us unique, is we ask questions that no other creature is capable of even imagining. So how does that get us to this question of free will? And uh, what can, from your perspective, evolution tell us about the fact that it exists, should we accept that? Well, first of all, in terms of what I actually wrote about free will, I did not pretend to have verbally dissected the brain or pointed to a particular area of anatomy and say, here, here, in this neuron, in this ganglion, this is where free will resides. Uh, in fact, I think the existence or non-existence of free will is a bit of a mystery. I believe for philosophical reasons that relate to the validity of science itself that we have to suppose the existence of free will because if we take the other side of that question, as I mentioned earlier, then science itself is suspect. The other point, which has been made by a number of other writers, is that when our species began to evolve, and we can trace the most dramatic physical changes in human ancestry to a period of time that began about four million years ago. And within the space of about two and a half million years, the brain size of our pre-human ancestors compared to us literally tripled in size. To have a single organ triple in size in the space of just a couple million years is absolutely extraordinary. And that organ, of course, was the brain. There's very good neuroscience that suggests that as the pre-human brain evolved into the human one, not only did it get bigger, but there was an enormous disruption of the usual connections, which are characteristics of the brains of other primates. And this disruption resulted in what Randy Bruckner at Harvard called 
a non-canonical set of connections in the cortex, the outer layer of the brain, which is quite frankly where most of the thinking goes on, that is characteristic of human speech and thought. And this means that our brain got dramatically rewired. Now, that dramatic rewiring, I think it's clear, gave us a lot of the capacities that, uh, if not completely unique to humans, are certainly developed in our species to an extent that you don't see anywhere else in the living world. And these include speech, language, imagination, cognition, perception, the ability, if you will, to do mathematics and to create science and to create art and to create culture. It is entirely possible that free will itself is an illusion. But if it is, and this is not a point that's original with me, if it is an illusion, it's an illusion that had evolutionary significance. In other words, it had adaptive value within evolution because the sense that we are making up we are making up our own minds, that we are coming to our own conclusions, many would argue, has adapted value in terms of facilitating the formation of a cohesive and coherent society where individuals at least believe they are making decisions of their own free will, therefore they are responsible for those decisions, and therefore the norms and behavioral morals, if you will, of society itself can help to shape that society and reduce conflict. Yeah, there's one argument that uh, a friend of mine who studies prejudice in social neuroscience, Dave Amodio, makes, which is that, you know, we all have these implicit biases that are that are built in. We uh, have evolved to categorize others into friends and foes. And we are very quick to do that. And yet we also have a well-connected prefrontal cortex that allows us to override our you know, instincts and, and produce behavior that is more socially acceptable. And so it's not that we don't have these uh, evolutionarily adaptive uh, drives to categorize, but we also have an evolutionarily adaptive stopgap uh, you know, or a checkpoint that allows us to, to sort of shape our own behavior in ways that aren't, isn't just about stimulus and response. Yeah, the, the, the neuroscientist Gary Marcus wrote a wonderful book called Kluge, K-L-U-G-E. And I'm sure most of your listeners know that Kluge is a a pejorative term that comes from computer science uh, that basically refers to an awkward or very poorly constructed computer program. Um, I like to, well, I, I took, uh, uh, I was educated at college in the 1960s um, when we did computer, we wrote computer programs on punch cards, believe it or not. And uh, I passed the course And I wrote a whole series of programs in languages like COBOL and Fortran and so forth. But I remember a teaching assistant looking at one of my programs, even though it worked, and say, well, it works, but it's a bit of a kludge, Um, meaning your program was not elegant elegant or or efficient and so forth. Well, Gary Marcus wrote a book called Kludge, but it was about the human brain. And it was making the point that any neuroscientist would agree with, that the human brain is not this eloquent, elegantly designed or constructed mechanism that does everything just right. It's sort of a slapdash, uh, cobbled together mechanism with layer after layer of evolutionarily added capabilities onto it. Uh, and that's why so often our perceptions are wrong, our judgments are prejudicial, as the example that you made, uh, and we often come to the wrong conclusions about things. But as Marcus also pointed out, one of the things that really is characteristic of human beings is we can realize that. 
we can understand ourselves well enough to know when those inherent errors, prejudgments, and prejudices are popping up. And if we think about it, we can control them to some extent. And as he put it, we have the capacity to outwit our inner kludge. And that also is another of those things that makes the human creature special. So I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Ken's book, The Human Instinct, How We Evolved to Have Reason, Consciousness, and Free Will, is available now at booksellers everywhere. And before we leave, I have one last question for you, which which is one that uh, has more of a practical purpose. You know, we often, as uh, consumers of science, are have to, have to rely on the media uh, to tell us about what the latest findings are, because we simply can't read all the original scientific papers ourselves, at least not in areas for which we are not experts. So what should we look for when evolutionary psychologists uh, uh, sort of publish uh, findings that can tell us, that can help us to distinguish, you know, a good scientific argument and a good paper from one that is overreaching, particularly when it has to do with what makes us human? That's a great question. And I think it applies not just to evolutionary psychology, but to just about anything in science. And the two or three pieces of advice I would give is, first of all, look for a trusted messenger. And what I mean by a trusted messenger is uh, an article that you might see in Scientific American or the science section of the New York Times, or some other regular periodical. Um, And I think the reason for that is these are heavily edited publications uh, where there are experts upon experts sort of trying to filter out uh, the noise that you'll see uh, with respect to outlandish scientific claims that might show up in something like Facebook. Uh, And I'd always tell people to beware the sweeping unsupported claim. Uh, because very often these turn out to be suspect. The second thing is it's very important to have a grip or have an understanding of who is who has done this research and who has funded this research. Um, if the research has been done by um, uh, the national funded by the National Institutes of Health, by the National Science Foundation, that doesn't mean it's right, but it certainly means that the investigators got funding with a free reign to discover whatever was out there. If the research is funded by a drug company, by a political lobbying group, or by some other group with a vested interest in having the outcome out it, outcome come out in a particular way, um, that's a warning sign. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's a warning sign. And then finally, wherever possible, it's useful to track back the news report or the Facebook posting to the original scientific paper. And I say that not because uh, the average person can actually read that scientific paper, uh, but it's worthwhile to try to figure out where did this come from? Did it actually come from a reputable journal? Was it simply a self-published book? Um, Or is there something really behind it? And if you can track it back to an original journal, see that it is, in fact, like physics review letters or something like that, an actual edited scientific journal. Um, And very often, Even non-specialists can read the summary of a paper, which is usually printed first, maybe just a paragraph, and see whether or not the claims that the authors made match the claims that the publicists are making for it. I think that's a useful way to do it as well. Very sound advice. Ken Miller, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Look, I get how interesting 
free will is. It's incredibly attractive subject because it fascinates that philosophical part of my brain. But on some level, I'm still left asking the question, like, does it matter if we have free will or not from the perspective of just our own sort of human experience? Yeah, I think that's that's the question that a lot of people have. Like, ultimately, is this argument? I mean, it was kind of, you know, kind of was interesting when it was first brought up this idea that actually we don't have free will coming from especially people who are supposed to be experts in the brain. And, you know, now we have an expert in evolution saying, hey, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, the corollary. And does this really matter if we are still going to have this illusion? And even if you know, it's an illusion, it's still a very powerful illusion. Even the biggest proponents of the idea that we don't have free will will, uh, you know, concede that the illusion is strong and they fall prey to it all the time. What do some magicians say? If you reveal the illusion, you ruin the trick? Well, yes, except in this case, I think that's really hard to do. You know, I think it's really hard to continue to convince yourself that you really have no free will. But on the other hand, I also think that there's this side of the argument, which I, you know, I, I think is important again to bring up, is is this notion that just because we have a lot of implicit processing, because a lot of things happen outside of our conscious awareness and seemingly instinctually, right, that we don't have control over them, that doesn't mean that we should have the, you know, green light to act immorally. That's abuse of the the concept and the argument. I think I think we can all easily agree on that. And there is lots of abuses of that argument that exist out there on the on the internet. Luckily, not a lot of them have taken hold, but they have been given rise. So is indulging in the scientific exploration of this topic when we don't have the tools to really assess it quantitatively, experimentally, does it open up that arena for people to misuse it? I mean, it does. It does. But I also want to say that there are, you know, real societal impacts of this, especially in the judicial system, right? Is it my brain made me do it? Uh, Does that get you out of being culpable of committing a crime? I mean, this is something that is actually an issue right now in the courts. And for the most part, the courts have sided on the uh, on the fact that no, if you have, you know, some, uh, you know, if you're not as long as you're not if as long as you're competent in some way, my brain made me do it is not a good enough argument. And to be clear, you're not talking about like, oh, I had a brain tumor, which is like this tangible change. In uh, you. I even in cases in which there is a brain tumor. Really? Yes, I still think that there are times when people make decisions. I mean, you know, what are you going to argue that how, how are you going to you know, it depends on where the tumor is, right? It depends on what the consequences are, it depends on what else happens. Um, but I think just having a damaged brain does not preclude you from taking responsibility for your actions. And I think that what's interesting to me about, you know, a biologist's perspective is that this potentially opens a whole new set of tools by which we can study, you know, this phenomenon and by which we can actually make better decisions about it. So, you know, if, if we're not if it's not just limited to the neuroscientists to ask this question, if we can look at comparative, you know, psychology, if we can look at, you know, other other tools that evolution evolutionary biologists have, then I think that maybe we can um, get to a deeper answer on some of these questions. There's a weird way that the binary of this argument, that we either have free will or we don't, is what limits my participation in it. Because that binary doesn't exist as much in very many other 
questions in science. Well, it also doesn't really exist in consciousness. People think of consciousness as being an on-off switch, but in fact, there are different levels of consciousness. I mean, and you can alter them by taking certain drugs, you know, um, by going to sleep, uh, by doing all kinds of different things. And, you know, so, so you know, I think that that's kind of, I mean, I think you're right. I think, And I think, again, we, we are gaining a more sophisticated understanding of consciousness, and that is leading us to realize that it's not simply an on-off switch. And, um, you know, it's more complicated than that, but it's also still something that we need to keep thinking about. So let's do that. Uh, That's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, which we have been updating with links to the sponsors that you hear on our show, um, as well as links to the books that we're talking about. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, science news that you'd like us to cover, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. And just a reminder, you can go support us at the $5 level on our Patreon and get a ad-free version of this podcast every week. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. This episode was brought to you by Smart News. Say goodbye to fake news, nasty trolls, and the filter bubble of your social networks. Get your news in one minute from 300 trusted media sources with Smart News. Available for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.